Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber. Got a great show in store for you today. Uh, Before we get to Jim, just want to say a special thank you to our audience, spanning across 74 countries now, 50,000 plus subscribers and growing. Because of you and your support, we've been able to uh, establish ourselves as the newest podcast stream on iHeartRadio. We still are available on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. But now we have the, the uh, privilege and the luxury of being a part of a great podcast network across the globe. And I think we'll contribute nicely to that. Grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. we got the ear of the people out there that, that need to hear it. And we're just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there. And I think we do that on this show every week and then some. So with that, uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. All right, thank you, Dave. Hello, everyone. How are you this week? Yeah, we We've got a good one in store today, and and uh, I, I always say we've got a very sophisticated audience. They love smart, and your show brings smart every week. And uh, kind of give them a little precursor. If they follow you on Facebook, they always get a glimpse into what we're about to cover on the show. But um, <clears throat> you know, with with uh, just to kind of get the audience set with their notepads out there, arm action. We're going to go through exercise to help form that arm action, a little overall strength, and and some throwing programs uh, to to cap it off. But of course, in between. It's the space between the notes that makes this this uh, show special. So uh, I'll let you get started with with, with where you want to cap uh, get us going with. Well, thank you, David. Um, you know, just kind of a lead in from some of the things we discussed uh, last couple episodes. Uh, I was sitting back this week thinking that um, you know we've discussed how power pitchers of the past uh, knew the importance of rhythm and timing, and how we've gotten away with it in uh, in the modern game. Um, and we've delved a lot into the things that go wrong and how should we try to correct them. And they were mainly, um, baseball oriented, uh, specific drill work and different things to look for in the delivery and what our goals were. So I thought this week when we would discuss, uh, the limitations of, uh, of the inconsistent elbow and the arm action, we'd also dive into maybe some of the, uh, exercise prescription that help uh, put your, your young player, your young pitcher in the proper positions. Um, the thing that's occurred nowadays is I call a lot of what goes on, um, in the, in the throwing delivery that we see now, a lot of it was created because it's performance based. Not only did the individuals, I guess they were doing some reverse mapping and working back from release point, but it wasn't even release point. They were working back from result instead of as we've discussed being part of the process and feeling and repeating what you're what you're supposed to do with your body reverse scientific method yes exactly so i i kind of label what i see most of the time today is is in the uh, grouping of linear mechanics meaning everything is is working towards creating force on the drive line but it's not totally through the kinetic chain. The 
the hip mobility, the hip movement patterns, the hip stability is all inconsistent. Uh, the effort level through the lower half is, is out of control. And what this is produces is um, an extreme upper body uh, arm throwing mechanism in the delivery. The force is being generated from the waist up. I read an article this week, um, the son of uh, Louis Tion. I don't remember some of the statistics that he he quoted and he brought to the table, but the insane thing is he's one of three pitchers to have like complete games and 200 plus strikeouts in an inning and, and just crazy numbers when you think about today's game. Um, and, and yet the son was, you know, talking about how he's not in the Hall of Fame and some of the things that he remembers in having conversations with his dad, even to this day, uh, I believe the son is a, is a player agent and some of the things that he started taking note of on the pitching side. And the first thing he spoke of was that everybody's an upper body arm thrower. There's no consistency in the, the development of force through, through kinetic chain, the use of the lower half. Um, Everything is power, power developed. This this contributes to an extremely inconsistent release point and elbow position. The thing that we're going to discuss on this show. Um, and he went through some particulars that he used to discuss with his dad that we will discuss. But in reflecting on that, one of the things that I see when uh, in youth development, most of the show is today is going to be targeted towards uh, early teen years um, into the later teen years. A lot of it still has to do with the eight, nine, 10, 11 and 12 year olds, specifically the 10 and 10 to 12 year old group. Um, but some of the things we're going to, we're going to talk about later, as far as the conditioning aspects, um, there's a different way to go about it with that younger group. But first, we're going to attack those teenagers. Um, what I see when working with them consistently, um, you know, the whole sellout for velocity has been discussed on many, many other podcasts that we've had in many, many different uh, conversations, old school conversations about baseball from pro scouts, amateur scouts, college coaches, the whole array of individuals that are, are witnessing it. The thing that you see is that um, with the inconsistent lower half and just the upper body, you know, arm type of uh, delivery, we create a couple of things. <clears throat> the first one I see a lot of is pole vaulting through the front side. Now in the pole vaulting through the front side is the, 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 the energy stored up through the feet, through the legs, up into the hips goes into the center your center of gravity we'll use the the navel as a an example right around that area and as that center of gravity moves towards the front hip it gets blocked could be from a hyper post on the front side with the with the knee a hyper extension in the front knee and even happens at times with younger kids <clears throat> with their knee flexed and that hip blocks whether it's improper hip movement or, or uh, improper movement patterns that have been learned previously. And as that is blocked, 
you see a rise in the back hip through the rotation, which then results in a rise of the shoulder into the elbow. And now you're dealing with the high elbow. Um, where, should, where should the chest be on the finish? I guess that's it. Well, for me, uh, I always look at that. If, if you release, if you hinge the front hip properly and you release that center of gravity past the front hip, that chest is going to end up at least parallel to, to the ground. Yeah, that's a, that, that's what if, if people look at baseball cards. I mean, take a look at some of the greats on there and you get a chance to see that. Uh, what about, and, and again, if I'm skipping around, uh, bring me backwards. But uh, just trying to give a again, we're an audio show only, but you do a great job of painting a picture for the visual. And they can follow you on Facebook, too, to see some of the visuals. So the chest parallel to the ground. What about the, the heel of the back foot as it's coming through? I see a lot of guys out to the side. Is it a heel to the sky? Um, you can use that terminology. I What I like to do when I'm working with an individual is I, I come up with the verbal cues and triggers that create the proper feel in their movement. Um, so of course, some individuals, if we give them heel to the sky, that could result in a proper movement pattern. The importance for me in the, on the backside is, is that that back hip releases mm-hmm. and rotates. And when you go back to the, the components or triple spin, the angle of the hip turn, the angle of the shoulder turn, and the angle of the arm slot, we'd like them to match up and that way they can amplify. If they're going in different directions, then they become a negative, and they can't be part of the amp- amplification of force at release point. So heel to the sky may be right for somebody, but it's it's all individual based on uh, the, the flexion of those three components together, as opposed to cookie cutter net, like like I had mentioned. Correct, correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a guy, believe it or not, he pitched at Seton Hall, left-hander, had pretty good stuff, drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers, and in his first year, I'm watching his first bullpen in a mini camp, and I nicknamed him the Scorpion because his back foot, his back heel, believe it or not, because he, he had hypomobility of his joints, especially of his hip joint, his back heel actually touched the top of his cap. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, uh, that's an extreme right there because in the, in the top end, he actually had difficulty controlling his foundation because of the force created by the backside which pushed his, with his hypomobile hip, um, back hip, it actually pushed his foot back heel all the way up to the top of his head, uh, which, which of course hindered overall balance and, and kinesthetic awareness and things like that. Um, but the difficulty in the pole vault is that as we've discussed in the past, our elbow positioning should be in the vicinity of 90 degrees. 90 degrees abduction of the shoulder, so elbow up to shoulder height, and 90 degrees in uh, flexion, so hand over elbow. I mean, that's perfection. But like in anything, if we're talking about 85 to 105 degrees, you know, we're, we're still doing pretty good. The problem I see is that when the uh, pole vault comes into play and the kinetic chain is now pushed into a higher positioning, the elbow then goes into a higher positioning, and then you can't drop into – it's impossible for the elbow, for the arm to drop into external rotation as you accelerate forward. The same could be said about the low elbow or even the person that throws with the arm action of the lead elbow, all right? 
low elbow usually occurs when, uh, well, sometimes it goes hand in hand with leading with the elbow, but the low elbow a lot of times occur occurs because just like getting back to the chest parallel to the ground out front, I use the analogy of, of doing a uh, rotational crunch. When an individual does a crunch, they crunch and then they're supposed to rotate. But what you see young guys do is the second they start flexing forward, they're rotating. And a lot of guys throw that way. And what happens is before the front foot, the stride foot plants, that upper body is already rotating. Now, in the, in the younger guys, the uh, 8 to 12 little leaguers, a lot of times that's due because of improper hip and shoulder separation. But there's one thing to note and to caution that um, at that age, any of the rotational work they do playing the game or playing sports or riding their bike or running around is sufficient enough as far as a training um, protocol for them. Now, to start getting into resistance type work for them, I mean, their bones haven't healed, their hips, their spine, you know, talking about some, uh, some iffy areas there as far as we don't want stress fractures of the spine or the hips or anything like that. So it's best to focus on hip shoulder separation as a training tool uh, with the teenagers, usually after 14 years old. And again, just like when we spoke about, is my son ready to pitch? Um, there's, you know, besides chronological age, there's a lot of physical factors and mental factors that come into play, but the physical factors would give you a better guideline to when rotational um, training with med ball work and different things like that, smash balls would, would become appropriate. But when the uh, low elbow occurs, it's usually when that rotation occurs before foot, foot plant, uh, stride foot plant, you get that early flying on the front side. Ideally, when that foot plants, when that foot hits in the delivery, you want to be what's called a neutral shoulder adduction. You, you want your elbows, both elbows to be up to your shoulder and both in line uh, in direction of where your target is. What happens if that front side goes early, then that front side is off, if you want to use the word driveline. And if that backside maybe reaches back or has a low elbow or some of the things we're going to talk about, um, that's a, that's in my book, that's a big negative. In fact, as your front hip goes into external rotation, I'll use this for the older guys, as your front hip goes into external rotation, if you're too deep negative in uh, horizontal adduction, you're, you're probably going to see the doctor because uh, things just from the front to back aren't in sync. Um, that was, I was going to ask you is when you're, when, when we're watching, let's say we're, I know we're talking teenagers here, yeah. these injuries earlier and earlier with these kids you're pointing out some telltale signs that you, you don't have to be a parent can watch this in their kid. Cause they're certainly taking another video when we're watching major league games. Should we be surprised when we see a guy on the shelf because of a shoulder elbow, you know, whatever they're talking about, uh, uh, abdominal, when we just check out the simple thing, when they still shot and we see the shoulders out of, or the elbows and shoulders out of whack. That is correct. I mean, we've spoken about this in the past, you know, my whole thought process is that a lot of times in the world of baseball now is everybody's a, a replaceable part. You know, you started really seeing that when it came to the whole uh, 
designation of the term war wins above replacement. Um, everybody's replaceable, especially in the medium to small markets. They're going to look and they're going to go, well, I've got eight middle relievers that are somewhat similar. I'm going to put four in AAA as insurance policies and four in the big leagues, and we're going to run them out there. And if they blow, they blow, and then we'll replace them with something else. So there's not – I haven't seen, even even dating back to um, a conversation I had with a couple of big league pitching coaches, say, oh, over 10, 15 years ago, there's not a lot of teaching going on as far as biomechanics and pitching deliveries in the big leagues. Um, now the sad part is because of the, my feeling is because the money is so large, even in young guys that are signing nowadays, a lot of times there's not necessarily a mechanical or biomechanical adjustments made at that level, because who wants to be the pitching coach or the pitching coordinator says that, you know, maybe Paul Skeen should do something a little different. But now Paul Skeens, because he hasn't done it that way, comes up a little sore. Or we've slowed down his development because we need him in the big leagues by the end of next year. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> so most definitely you can watch major league ball games and minor league ball games nowadays. I mean, the other night I took my boys uh, and my wife to the uh, Charlotte Knights game, AAA, and it was I mean, we got lucky because it was fun for us. We It was against the Nashville Sounds, which is back to the, being the AAA ballpark of uh, the Milwaukee Brewers. We saw Garrett Mitchell in his first game back in a rehab assignment. Uh, we saw a pretty good game, but every time I go to a Knights game, one of the things that I'm amazed at is uh, every pitcher on each staff, when you go down the lineup, they're, they're all averaging a walk or more uh, an inning pitched. Not a lot of strikes thrown. and the night we saw it, it wasn't like there was a lot of guys coming out of the pen throwing 95-plus. A lot of low 90s and not a lot of strikes, um, whether they're scared out of the zone or whatever. But, I mean, it just – this sellout for velocity and everything else that it's caused, it just has inf infiltrated the system, both up and down. Um, 40,000 lost games this year to injury. Uh, people are tracking it. That's 1,400 yeah. players, 40,000 lost games. We're approaching a billion dollars in lost monies to, to owners paying players to be injured. And I don't know what they're getting on the back end, if it's insurance policies, if it's, you know, slowing people down, they, they win money in arbitration. But that's absurd. That's almost a billion dollars just this year um, in lost revenue. So, it's, uh, you know, if, if people can't deal with the eye test that, and they want to treat these players like dividends, well, there's your answer right there. That's an awful lot of money to be wasting on improper teaching or not teaching at all. Yes. Um, you know, I'll go back to a story that I've told about uh, when I became a pitching coordinator for the Brewers. I do believe that a majority of the reasons why they selected me was because of my background in exercise science and uh, my ability to, to see different things that needed to be corrected and my willingness to correct it. I mean, in the first year, as I've stated before, a limited uh, reduced injuries by over 70% with the pitchers in the organization. A lot of that whole thing was spearheaded by Doug Melvin and the, the things that he asked us to do and how we needed to improve as an organization in those areas. We couldn't afford, we're a small market club, we couldn't afford uh, DL days, uh, either in the, minor, in the big leagues, obviously, but in the minor leagues too, because we needed 
we needed development time for these kids to be ready to, to play in the big leagues for us. We had to promote from within. We're not going to go out and sign a lot of free agents uh, for exorbitant amount of money. And that's how we operated. A lot of that was then, um, you know, under the direction of Ro- Roger Kaplinger, who was the head athletic trainer at the time. Um, and the strength program and the strength coaches, I mean, everybody had their hand in it. But the main goal was uh, with the pitchers, uh, you know, I took the lead as far as here's the way we're going to do things. And this is the structure. And these are the benchmarks that need to be attained before someone's promoted and other things. Um, I didn't necessarily put a promotional system together. My thoughts were not based upon solely about performance. Obviously, you would like an individual to be performing well on a level before you move them up to the next one. But it was more about, um, you know, with starting pitchers and our number one goal was to develop starting pitchers and develop starting pitchers that remained healthy. So there was a lot of parameters that I put into place to evaluate that and to, to evaluate the development system to see if we were hitting those benchmarks um, so that guys were promoted at the right time. Um, but getting back to the arm actions, there's a couple of things. The two most common that people see, you know, is, uh, is that wrist wrap, you know, think of Rick Sutcliffe. And the problem with me with young kids with a wrist wrap is they're not doing it because it was this movement pattern that's been learned, you know, over 10 year period, 20, 20 year period. They're doing it because the muscles of their forearm and their hand and wrist are not relaxed. They're flexing. They're contracting those muscles. They're squeezing that ball because they think that, you know, that's part of the reason they throw harder. Um, The other one is what I call the plunge. That's when instead of the hand being wrapped into deep, into uh, deep flexion, it's reversed and the, and the back of the hand goes back to the forearm in extension and then the arm goes down. So I call it like the plunger effect. And same thing there, that, that even, it takes more muscular contraction. And now all of a sudden, in order to throw the ball properly, those muscles have to relax in order to then move or else you're, you're fighting against it. It's like you're playing, it's like you're playing a a tug of war. You know, if you're pulling and pulling and pulling, but the other guy's pulling, then you're not going anywhere if you're pulling in two opposite directions, you know, and then we get the things that we've discussed, the high and the low elbow that we've already discussed. Uh, another one that I come across a lot, and this is the scary one to me, because if this arm action is repeated over time, uh, this is where when we start amping up the pitcher's workload when they're a teenager, we start seeing the, the elbow injuries and the Tommy John surgeries. Um, and, you know, we, we do realize that those type of injuries aren't necessarily 100% of the time like an acute, like, oh, we had an incident. No, those are, those have been built up over problems in with the elbow over the course of time. So when you look at 10, 11, and 12-year-old guys and how they throw and they're doing it improperly, and they're not really at the age where we're going to start conditioning aspect in the weight room. There is a conditioning aspect. It's more body weight, movement-based, motor skill activities. Um, you're not going to end up changing. You're not going to end up 
making someone that much stronger so that they can withstand the stress of doing something improper. So over time that builds up. And then, then when we're 13, 14 or 15, we see a problem, but it's an underlying issue that starts when they're younger. Uh, and the lead elbow, you can, you can see it in a couple of ways. The first one is when an individual is just dominant, his movement patterns, his whole arm action is dominant with his elbow. When he takes the ball out of the hand, it's the elbow that goes back first. Uh, when he then, when when that happens, as soon as you elbow first, then as you turn, it's going to be elbow first. What should what should come first? Are you talking about taking the ball out of the glove when you separate? <clears throat> yes, I especially to young guys, I say the hand is the captain of the ship. Nice. All the movement patterns should be related to your hands, not your elbows. Um, you know, there's simple drills like emptying the water bottle. You, t- you know, if you want to do it in both hands, you take the imaginary water bottle in your hand and then thumbs down, you know, pour the water bottle out. What you see with a guy, what I like to do is have the have the pitcher do that drill as an experiment sitting down because if they're elbow dominant in their arm action, the elbow goes back first. And when they and when the thumbs down and the, they, they pour the water all over their lap because they're not getting that nice flow and release of the hand out back. Um, and those element elbow dominant people that they, they are, um, they're tough to correct. Um, they almost muscle the ball, right? Yes. I mean, you see this in a lot of, uh, converted infielders and catchers that are converted. That's how infielders are taught. You, you, you go back with the elbow first. Catchers. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and the truth for me, this is me, this is my opinion. All arm actions should be the same regardless of position. Now, is the arc of an outfielder maybe longer than the pitcher? Yes. Is the arc of the hand larger for a pitcher than it is for an infielder? Yes. But the actual positioning of the elbow should be similar. Yeah, um, I, I can't do that as I was, I've learned my, as my sons are going through, they hear from different teachers and some guys, I mean, well thought of in professional baseball as an infielder, I was always taught to prevent that el- uh, elbow from leading the way to almost circle a little bit. That little circle action gave me that momentum I needed to feel comfortable having a shorter release, but leading with my hand instead of my elbow. So yeah. a little circle, Bob Schaefer, he's actually talked about that on our show today. Well, if, if I've just stated something that's similar to what Bob Schaefer says, uh, I'm having a good day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, the, the thing that happens um, with those elbow dominant is that um, you, you can see it. It's every movement. The release to the back is elbow. The hand never releases past the elbow. The movement forward is initiated by the elbow. All right, this causes either the floppy elbow or the or the catapult action that we've spoken to. But the other thing that you see a lot with the younger guys is um, is their elbows in a good position, and then all of a sudden out front it collapses, just collapses into a lower position. And a lot of times that is specifically due to the uh, strengthening of the posterior side of the shoulder. Now. When you're dealing with a lot of 10, 11, 12-year-olds, one of the craziest things that I see is that you go to a little league, and um, I remember going to, I think, uh, 
the perfect game event in, in Jupiter, Florida. And everybody's there, and it's packed. And you see the uh, cross-symmetry company. So it's the tubing exercises like the J-bands, but they're, they're put in a way that they can go across, and you can do all your scapular stability and all the different things um, with the cross-symmetry. And it's, a, it's an awesome product for the right for the right market, for the right audience. Um, but you go to a little league field and uh, all of a sudden you see these 10-year-old kids doing uh, cross-symmetry exercises or plyo ball exercises or even Jaeger band, you know, J-tubing uh, exercises. Now, I don't mind light tubing as far as part of a warm-up, you know, to get the blood flowing. But the actual thought process that you're going to make the shoulder and the rotator cuff and all stronger when a kid's 9 and 10 years old, I mean, they haven't even learned how to squat down and pick up a box the correct way. They haven't learned the movement patterns on how the hips hinge. They haven't created the the proper musculature and their large muscles in their body to all of a sudden we're focusing on what I call the synergistic muscles of the body. Um, we're working on the stabilizing muscles of the body. And then what happens if the large muscles in that area of the body don't work properly um, and the movement patterns are off, then the rotator cuff fires up during the whole throwing process. As we've discussed before, that's not, that's not our goal. That's not the way to throw the ball efficiently. Um, the last thing that I wanted to include in this, uh, it doesn't necessarily directly relate to arm action, but it does do things that at times creates a high, high elbow. And that's when you, you, you come across a trap, a trapezius dominant individual. Now the trapezius is the largest muscle in the back and, and when it fires up, there's a lot of times, especially when we're younger, you see the elevation of the shoulders so that everything starts, as I say, partying with the ears. We don't want the shoulders to be partying with the ears. We don't want them even close to the ears. The proper scapula stabilization is retraction and depression of the scapula. But in that trap dominant individual, you see with the retraction, you see an elevation. And this is going to in the throwing process, if we're elevating the elbow into the proper position by elevating our shoulder, then we're gonna it's gonna lead to shoulder impingement, which is uh, the bicep tendon, the supraspinatus tendon on the humeral head is now rubbing up against what's called the acromion process, which is the tip of your uh, your clavicle, your collarbone. So that too uh, becomes um, quite evident, especially. Um, I mean, I even have it with my son. He he doesn't impinge. He, he doesn't elevate the scapula. But at the current stage, he's 10 years old. So he's a long, loose kid. And he's kind of got those winged out scapulas instead of being retracted and depressed. So there's not a lot of musculature back there in the rhomboids and the lats and the other muscles that are part of the pulling groups. And they're usually not at that age as strong as your trapezius because your trapezius is the largest muscle in your back. So those are some things that you kind of have to watch for. Um, again, a lot of that is sometimes is uh, brought on because of selling out for velocity and the hip movement isn't proper and the hips then drive everything in an upwards turn or a lateral turn and, and you see um, 
obviously if the hips are flying out early and they're completely lateral and it pulls the shoulders lateral, then it's going to be difficult for the elbow to stay up to the shoulder. So it all works together. But when you see these different arm actions, you not only do you work on them with specific um, throwing drills, like standing for the elbow dominant individuals, you stand next to a, with a, you know, a batting cage net or a wall or a fence to your back to ensure that you release the hand out of the glove and you stay in line, then rather the elbow dominant person, that elbow is going to hit that net or that fence or wall or even bush, you know, whatever you have handy. The same as casting out as a hitter. Hitters do. Hitters are cautioned about the same thing from a mechanical standpoint, um, casting out behind as we're, we're talking about behind right now. But I like that point. I, if, if, and I, I challenge people that are listening to this, look on YouTube and, and there's, and you were talking pitching now, but I like your point. Uh, please catchers, infielders, take a look at that as well. Cause they're doing the same thing out there that you're cautioning kids against. And, and I agree. Throwing is throwing. Um, the, uh, I think it's great advice. I, I, I love when I get smarter on the show and I do every week with you, but I jotted that down to make sure my sons aren't doing that as well today. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things was that, uh, a number of years back, and there's some people still professing it there. They noticed that the, uh, the reflex stretch action of the body, meaning that if you stretch the muscle, then it reacts quicker and stronger and more powerful, meaning within the movement. So what would happen in the throwing motion is that they would purposely really retract the scapula so that when it would accelerate, it would accelerate more powerfully. Um, but what I find in, in that, even though my, expl- my explanation is a little difficult visually, but what I find is that young kids, when they attempt to really retract their scapula, if they don't have the proper, proper musculature formed in the back for scapular stability, it all becomes elbow dominant. See, they don't like release their hand back and retract their scapula. It's like if you watch them do a little seated row or a standing row with some tubing and the action then is with their arms and then it's their elbows back that causes the retraction instead of the shoulder blade retracting on its own. Um, so when you get into these exercises, you won't have time today to go into the different specifics, but you're, some of them we've spoken about the past and you can find them on my Facebook page and uh or just Google them and you're going to see a pretty good amount of uh, pretty productive type exercises, but you focus it on the posterior shoulder. So we got scap stability, the spinal stability, the hip mobility, they all go hand in hand, external rotators and the supraspinatus, which initiates the abduction of the, of the elbow into the throwing motion. Um, Pulling exercises, low row, retraction and depression of the scapula. Remember to be in about a three-to-one ratio between pulling workload to pushing workload. Um, if we keep that in mind, and now that one right there, that that's specifically as we're going into our teenage years. If we, Because hopefully by the teenage years, we've learned, the body's learned to move properly and it's been trained properly um, with the different type of activities that we've discussed previously you know, body weight, movement-based, motor skill activities. And uh, they're also at the point where they're, they've they started going into the overall strength. Now, 
the problem with the overall strength nowadays is that um, not everybody can pay $400 a month to go work out at one of these uh, high-velocity training centers. Um, and and I'm, that's not even talking about the pitching aspects of it. That's talking about just the workouts. Um, now, there are gyms that you can go you know, to, um, but the problem is you're dealing with with young players and, you know, who's going to supervise them. That that's the difficulty. If the adult has the ability to work out with their, with their child, with their young athlete, then, you know, that's awesome. But if not, how do we instruct, um, young players that are initiating themselves into an overall strength program into proper exercise form and, and different things that biomechanically are efficient. Um, this is, this is where the little hiccup occurs. Because for me in the game of baseball uh, and the things that we've spoken about in the, with the stability issues, we're talking about squat variations, pull variations, deadlift variations, some limited press variations. Um, these are complex closed-chain closed kinetic exercises. So if you take a, a book out of uh, an Olympic weightlifting coach and they're dealing with kids much older, they're starting these exercises with a, with a broomstick or a closet dolly, a six foot closet doll that, you know, they picked up at Lowe's or, or Home Depot. They're, they're not starting out even with a barbell. There's a teaching um, period in time in order for the body to learn the proper movement and they're complex movements. Um, the problem with the complex movements is that when you're talking about a young teenager, a lot of times, if the instruction isn't correct, now we're um, now we're doing more harm than we're actually benefiting, because we're teaching improper movement patterns, and then we're even teaching the muscles how to contract in those movement patterns. And now it's something down the road; it's going to be have to be totally fixed. Yeah, I think there, you know, there's such an inertia for early success. I like the fact starting out. I don't care if it's complex movements or simple movements with, as you mentioned, just a, a simple broomstick uh, because people are in such a hurry and you, you, you had visuals of literally kids using, albeit great tools, but just not for that age, the bands and the heavy balls and all that stuff. If people just slow down and focus on building a strong foundation and taking your time, that taking your time is going to, as, as you did with the brewers, you want kids to play longer and play healthier. Um, and as a result, they'll throw harder if they do that eventually uh, or hit the ball harder. But when they're the way they're doing it now, everybody wants it. They want it now. And that's an immature athlete for you. And it's, it's, it's governed by parents, really. Yes. Well, one of the things to remember, it's a very important point, is that if you're training the body and all of a sudden your focus is on the fine-tuning muscles, the stabilizing muscles, the synergistic muscles that help in posture and the whole thing. And if that's your focus, like a rotator cuff program, a tubing program, a wrist weight program, and the larger muscles of the body are non-functioning, there's no benefit. There's no, there's no benefit because the larger muscles of the bodies are going to be inadequate in order to perform the proper movement pattern. The goal of this is to not use those muscles to produce force. Those muscles are there to stabilize. 
But if the larger muscles in your body are not moving correctly or are not trained and conditioned well enough to do the movement and create the force, then what happens is we see all of the smaller muscles, if you want to just call them assistant muscles, start to dominate the action. And this is where you get the improper arm action, uh, the improper hip mobility, the proper spi- improper spinal stability, because instead of just those muscles being focused on stabilizing a joint uh, or being part of kinesthetic awareness uh, and your balance and your posture, they're part of producing the force. Uh, I think it was last week I used the example of bullwhip. Yeah. Um, this, it's a funny story. I'm, I'm going back to uh, early 90s, and uh, I'm coaching at Rockland Community College in New York, and we end up going to the Division I uh, Junior College World Series in Grand Junction, Colorado. And uh, <clears throat> I'm the pitching coach, and I'm in charge of a lot of other stuff. A good friend of mine is the head coach, Dan Keeley, and the uh, – and the guy that kind of did the offense and was the third base coach was a young coach named Tom McNamara. And uh, we had a pretty good run there at Rockland Community College until McNamara and myself both went back into professional baseball. So we're, we're out in Grand Junction and we're in one of these, uh, you know, lack of a better word, cowboy shops. And, you know, it's got all the leather goods and the boots and the whole thing and the cowboy hats and all the ranchers. and um, we come across this 30 foot leather bull whip. So, um, my buddy purchases it and now he's out in the parking lot trying to learn how to snap this bull whip. So it was incredibly hard because you have to have the right movement patterns to get that bull whip out in front of snap, especially a 30 foot bull whip. So what I say to the young kids nowadays is that it, is there any muscles in a bullwhip? And of course, of course there's not. I said, that's the way I want you to treat your arm as if there's no muscles in it. I want you for it to go along for, for the ride. I want all the force to be generated by your body. Let's try that for a few and let's see what happens. That's the goal in any throwing program for me. Um, and that's why the larger muscles have to be trained and those movement patterns have to be correct before we start, hey, I'm going to do my rotator cuff program and this and that and that, especially for the younger guys. Now, if we've progressed, um, then, of course, it is, it is part of the proper exercise prescription. And even if there should be a corrective exercises because of some things that we've seen in the biomechanics. And it brings me to one topic, especially for teenagers. As I said, not everybody has a, you know, free cash flow that they're going to go to every workout place and then go to a trainer and go to a pitching guy and go to this and go to that. I mean, you know, the poor parents, the money that uh, is being spent nowadays and then spend the money for your travel team and all these other things. But, um, You can get all the basics of a strength program with one kettlebell. Um, you go to the store, you pick up a, one kettlebell for 
let's say whatever your starting point is, 20 pounds, 25 pounds, you go through the basic exercises of squat variation, some pull variations, deadlift variation, press variation, some finishing exercises like a kettlebell swing. Um, and not only can you improve the strength of the large muscles through the kinetic chain, but you improve balance, coordination, body control. Uh, the uniqueness of the kettlebell is that uh, you can do power movements. Uh, the weight's not as heavy as if you have 135 pounds on a, on a barbell. So as long as correct form and you learn how to do the movement the proper way, in my book, it's a little safer. Um, but it's a way in which you not only save money, and that's not necessarily the primary goal, but it's a way in which you can start an exercise program and this type of strength con and conditioning in your backyard, in your garage with very, very limited money invested. Um, you know, the whole fitness and, and strength community is, is basically their sales and marketing program is basically built on that we get as many subscriptions as possible and we can tell them that they can come on a limited amount of times, but they end up coming, you know, twice a week, which then gets down to once a week because they're busy schedules that then gets down to maybe twice bi-weekly and maybe once a month. And next thing you know, you're not going anymore. I mean, those stories are, you know, uh, well-documented and we've all experienced them for ourselves. Whereas for $25, $30, and you get proficient in moving the 20-pound kettlebell, you move up to 25, you go to the store, you buy a 25. So that may be six months down the road. Over the course of a few years, you got a nice little kettlebell set that nobody can take from you. And uh, you're doing the movements that are going to help you improve the strength um, of your overall body. What kind of exercises are you talking about with the kettlebells now? Well, you, you can any exercise that you can do with a dumbbell, um, you know, dumbbells are also an option, but I like kettlebells because of some of the force creation and force absorption. Um, you, you know, a squat variation, so a goblet squat, uh, a squat with uh, one arm in the rack position in front of your chest, maybe with two arms racked with two kettlebells. But if you're using one to start, uh, there's different squat variations. There's all types of different pull variations, bent rows, one arm rows. Uh, lawn mowers, all these type of things. The terminology is, is different depending on who you're following. Um, um, press variations, kettlebell swing variations. I mean, a basic uh, kettlebell program. Now, when you're first learning kettlebells, you're going to stick to, um, I forget the exact term that the kettlebell guys use, but you, you're going to stick to squats and deadlifts and pulls and presses you're not going to go into complex movements like cleans and and all these force generation force absorption type of movements you're just there to use it to build strength um you know uh, the funny story about that is is why maybe my mind works that try to get the simplest piece of apparatus and and put in the work and show that you're dedicated and then maybe your, your, you know, your mom or dad or your grandma or grandpa, or whoever might foot the bill to, you know, improve your home gym or, or maybe now buy a, a membership for you to, to, you know, to train more. I'm not saying the train more is, is a negative thing. I'm saying that it's difficult. Um, you know, family has 
family has four children, uh, two girls, two boys. The girls are playing softball or gymnastics, and, and the, the boys are playing basketball and baseball, and they're playing AAU basketball or travel basketball. Next thing you know, you're, you're spending ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a year on, on your kids just playing ball when they're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, so that's the reason why. But I, like I said, I would stick to the basic, you know, the basic exercises, squat variation, deadlift variation, push and pull variation. Always remembering uh, that your pull work should be three times greater workload than your pushing work. Um, the other thing is that there's a lot of core training that can be done with a kettlebell besides your normal core, core training. Uh, you're looking for spinal stability, uh, bilateral. I mean, there's one move called the Turkish getup. You're using hip mobility, spinal stability, and shoulder stability all in once in a bilateral rotational plane. Well, that's what throwing a baseball is all about. Uh, you, you could do that with a young kid could do that with a five pound kettlebell. Uh, you could practice it with uh, body weight just to get the movement patterns down correct. But you're learning how to stabilize and then rotate and then function. Um, that's the key at the beginning. Like I said, let's learn how to do basic movements. Even if you want to describe it, let's learn how to bend over and pick up the box correctly. I mean, every different uh, manual labor workplace, there's a, a poster on the wall about how to bend and pick things up the right way. But a lot of kids don't know how to do that. Let's make sure the body can get in right in the proper positions. Um, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of money to learn how to do that. This leads me into throwing programs. One of the things that I see um, now in, in the real young little league age, age groups, you know, they might play in the town rec team two, two games a two games a week and have one practice or one game a week and have two practices. And, uh, you know, for them personally, I think that's ideal. Um, but when we get into the travel ball, we're all of a sudden they're having three to four practices a week. And then the whole weekend of, of games, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Saturday, Sunday. Um, one of the things that gets lost in the shuffle here is that we have to monitor workload. We have to monitor the throwing workload. That could be done as simple as you work a light throwing day, a moderate throwing day, and a heavy throwing day. And a heavy throwing day could consist of, uh, you know, one day your bullpen. Uh, obviously, a heavy throwing day is the day you pitch in a game, um, you know, and a long toss program, you know, that's done properly. Um, bullpens. The thing that I see in uh, a lot of travel ball is that guy never throws a bullpen during the week. And then, you know, they practice and everything. And then, and then he, you know, pitches maybe two or three times on a weekend. Uh, it reminds me of a, of a story because the reason I bring that up is that's not solely for the preventive nature of monitoring our workload. That's all part of the learning process. Uh, back in my days with the Toronto Blue Jays, we drafted a, a young guy out of high school in Hawaii. I believe it was the second round. And, uh, named Brandon League. 
And uh, the scout uh, did, a, did a phenomenal job with this, with this young man. Uh, back in those days, you remember that usually the East Coast supervisor or and maybe one of the area scouts from the West Coast would also have Hawaii. And it's not like they could get out there a lot, you know, to see everybody and get to know everybody. But the scouts that were involved in, in the Brandon League situation did a phenomenal job because he, he was throwing like 92, 93, maybe an occasional 94 in high school. But he never threw a bullpen. He never did a throwing program, a structured throwing program, exercise program, bullpen, anything. What he would do is he would start a game. Uh, if it was the Friday game, he would start a game. And then another game during the week, he would be the closer. So he'd pitch twice a week. And uh, we got him in uh, in Toronto. He signed. He went to Medicine Hat Canada in the Pioneer League. I was a pitching coach there. We put him on a structured throwing program, had him throw regular pens, he told me he had never, never thrown a bullpen before. So, like, what, what was his goal? What was he trying to do? Could I explain, you know, what, what he needed to do? We went over the whole process. He worked. He was a hard worker, great kid, absolutely phenomenal person from an outstanding family. And uh, I, don't, I would say it was probably his third or fourth, fourth start of the year. And we're in uh, – Missoula, Montana, playing the club uh, from the Diamondbacks. And um, the pitching coach, his name escapes me right now. His first name is Mark. It'll come to me. He was the closer for the San Diego Padres, and he won the Cy Young, Mark Davis. So Mark Davis was the pitching coach for the uh, Missoula squad. And uh, he had been the pitching coach. In one of the on one of the levels for the Diamondbacks, the year my brother uh, Mike Rooney pitched for him, Mike being a converted guy out of St. John's, and uh, so Mark before the game came over to say hello to me. He he had spoken to my brother uh, recently. Um, he wanted to say hello, introduce himself. He was a great guy, and that was at the start of the series. And the second game of the series, Brandon League pitched. And he threw, he threw about 80, 85 pitches. It was a successful start, probably one of the best starts of his young career. And of the 80, 85 pitches, he threw 75 fastballs. Now, I understand something. His natural fastball had a lot of movement, a lot of sink, a lot of ride on it. So uh, it was a pretty good fastball when it was, you know, 92 to 93, 94. On that day, after approximately a month of structured throwing programs, bullpens, the proper exercises, the proper nutrition, things like that, of the 75 fastballs, Brandon League threw 70 of them, 98 or higher, topping out at 101. And he was an 18-year-old kid. Um, probably just about to turn 19. So the importance of the structured throwing programs cannot be overstated. If we're going to pitch once a week in a game, 
we should throw one bullpen a week. Doesn't have to be for young guys, 45, 50 pitches. It could be 20, 25 pitches to work on something specifically. Usually for young guys, it's their balance, their rhythm, their timing. Um, We can work in some long toss. Now, we don't have to go out to 300 feet like some guys do. But you can go out to 120. You you go out to where you still feel comfortable. Um, You're not going to be using the the same um, arm action or throwing mechanic out front. You know, you're going to, your angle is going to be a little higher. You're you're aiming to to drop the ball so it hits the guy, you know, in the chest or the head. Um, If you're playing long toss with a guy that, a little bigger and stronger than you or a little taller and different type of things in his throwing action, his body and, and everything that his experience and he th- can throw the ball, you know, 120 feet and you can only throw it 80 feet. Well, throw it 80 feet and let it bounce to him. You know, this is all about stretching out the arm, loosening, making that arm feel like a bull whip. Uh, it's not an exercise to get bigger and stronger. Uh, flat ground work. Great way to, um, work into your delivery, your rhythm, your timing, and your mechanic on the flat ground. Um, Explain that a little bit, because I think that gets lost nowadays, the flat ground stuff. Um, Because, again, when you're doing flat ground, the elevated mound, you you get a little bit more velocity and and, and whatnot, and velocity is what kids are chasing now. But explain the importance of the flat ground as it pertains to mechanics. Well, um, there were some... There were some studies done in the past, and uh, there were, basically the, the studies were through the commissioner's office, and they were going on different size mounds, different heights on the mound, and their research said that there's less stress on the arm uh, on flat ground compared to throwing on a 10-inch mound. Um, my thought on that is that it's part of your throwing program so that you're even if you were doing long toss that day, you bring it back in and you start to try to execute your delivery and get some feel for your delivery. Now, I do know like back in the uh, Leo Mazzoni days of the Braves, they would throw two bullpens between starts, uh, regular work and maybe a touch and feel, but they still monitored workload. Their thought was the more times you're on the mound, the more you can perfect your uh, your delivery and your mechanics and your, work and your craft. And that's... Yes. And that, that is true, but that, 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 that's, um, that's major league pitchers. Yeah. You know, and, uh, so for the younger guys, as we start getting up there, yeah, there's a way to incorporate two bullpens a week when you're only throwing once a week. Uh, and, and that's part of the process also. That's maybe the next step. But the flat ground, you could, do, you could do every day, and you can control your intensity because you're on flat ground, whereas sometimes on the mound it's a little bit more difficult to control your intensity. Um, and we're working on the balance, the rhythm, the timing to repeat your delivery or repeat your, uh, you know, release point. And then the, the final thing in throwing programs is that, um, without getting into specifics, you, you're continually looking for drills, throwing drills, uh, as part of your warm up uh, routine that accentuates your ability to execute get the hand up front. We throw the ball in front of our body. We don't throw it behind our body like the javelin. What's some of your favorites? Um, you, know, you know what? Um, off the top of my head, you know, be, uh, I'm going to post something I wrote up the other day. 
about some throwing drills. Uh, I will post that in the next couple of days and that'll get into more specifics, but everything, you know, whether, whether it's the uh, elbow up, hand over the elbow and just flip the ball and this will, you know, so you look like an L and you're just flipping the ball, rotating. I call it paintbrush, paintbrush, fingers down and through the ball. Then you stay in the same position, you know, you're, you're parallel with your partner, rotate the front shoulder to the target and then go straight back with the hand and straight forward with the paintbrush again. Those type of activities. Um, even, even plyo ball work when it's done at, you know, 70, 80% effort as an exercise, uh, you can put your arm in that position and throw the ball off, off a wall nice or a screen and then catch it. And then you get the, uh, you set your contraction of the internal rotators too when you're and, uh, receiving the ball back and the hand goes back. Um, there's a lot. Some of it's tough to uh, visualize, but uh, I'll make that post so that you can you can get them. And, and a lot of times they're called by different names, but it's everything to enforce throwing the ball out front. Now, in closing, I have an interesting story. Can I ask you one question before you do that? Yes, sir. It's a drill question. And it's, again, I'm an infielder, former second baseman. So I always, uh, and, and I didn't employ this as a head college coach as much. Some I let some kids do it that liked it. But it, it, I, I'm rethinking it now as you're talking about the bullwhip, um, the towel drill. I know it's a staple in pitching. Kids do it to, to try to, you know, think about throwing uh, throwing that out in front of them. Explain that. Is that something you employ? Is that um, a, a good drill kids can do? Is it something that is... You know, from the infielder standpoint, I used to be like, what are they doing with a towel, for God's sakes? But yeah, I, talk I about don't, that second. not to derail you, but to talk right, about it. No, that. no, I, I don't mind it. But it, here's the thing that when I look at what drill is good for what, which individual, specific individual. If a person's able to do the two drills that I just spoke of, where you're just hand over the elbow, elbow up to the shoulder, you don't even go into external rotation, you just move into internal rotation and throw the ball a short distance, 10 feet to your partner. And you're working on spinning that ball 12 to six on that clock right out front from 12 o'clock to six o'clock. So the ball is spinning completely uh, vertical, if you would say, right? If you have, if you have difficulty doing that drill properly and then add the movement of the, of the trunk rotation to that and going straight back and straight forward, um, if you're an elbow dominant individual and those, tr- those drills are difficult for you to start, then trying to incorporate something like the towel drill is, uh, probably a negative. So there's things to do that are less, uh, explosive in their, in their movement pattern that you should probably work on first. And if at time you incorporate it to then, uh, use the towel drill, because basically you're attempting to stay in that position and snap that towel out front as if it was a, you know, a mini bull whip. Um, there's some benefit to it, but like a lot of things, the second uh, young players who have difficulty in repeating and feeling to begin with start doing something like that, I tend to think that it's more of a negative on uh, on the results that they'll achieve. Yeah, there's no magic drill. I'm, I'm with you. I- I prefer skill coaching instead of drill coaching with that. But, but go ahead. You're going to tell a story. And I- yeah, so in closing, interesting story. And it's just like you just sometimes you just stumble upon things. And, you know, so I had always said, I had always thought that and I do believe this, that that 
the offset training principles that are used in kettlebells sometimes where you have two different sized kettlebells, blah, blah, blah. You keep your balance, you keep your, your posture, everything like that. That could be beneficial in, in throwing a baseball. Um, and I looked at, you know, I don't call them weighted balls because in, in my mind, I'm talking about six ounces, seven, for a teenager, six, six, no more than nine ounces, but eight ounces, you know, maybe down to three ounces with a baseball weighing um, five ounces. So if you had the plyo balls like that, and the reason I say the plyo balls, um, because, you know, you can throw them against the walls and do the exercise against the nets and, and uh, you know, they're a little easier to catch and softer to catch than if you're throwing a, a, a baseball that weighs a little heavier. I call it variable resistance. And the reason I use that term is because if I gave, um, if I gave you a, six ounce plyo ball and I had to do a drill with it, you know, at 70, 80% as far as a throwing drill, you know, besides an exercise, I have no problem with plyo balls as exercise. Um, and then I gave you a four ounce ball, then a five ounce ball, then a three ounce ball, your body self adjusts, self corrects because your goal is to repeat your release point, repeat your mechanic. And, um, so I get an email a little while back about uh, all these new products that uh, Driveline are offering and, and stuff. And, and a lot of their products I, I use, okay? I don't necessarily use all of them the way Driveline, you know, recommends or in their different type program. But there's a lot of good things that they have from the smash factor, batting practice balls for young kids so that their hands don't hurt to, um, to the plow balls, um, and they came out with, and I'm sure it's been in existence for at least a year or two. So they came out with, I remember when the question was, why would we do a training protocol to increase our throwing velocity when you see all the guys in minor leagues or in high school or in college then have command issues? We're trying to improve command, not lessen command, in order to pitch in the big leagues or pitch at higher levels. So driveline and I don't know why they developed this or anything. And I think it's a good thing that they did. They came up with their, you know, uh, fastball command training protocol. Well, of course, you got to buy some more of their product. And it's different weighted balls. And you, you're supposed to throw them and hit your target at 70, 80% effort in order to improve the re repeatability of your release point and all the different things that, you know, I've been doing for over 20 years now. Um, so I just found it interesting that, you know, even, even in the uh, product marketing baseball world, uh, people make self-corrections and self-adjustments, which are good, but uh, for an upcharge. Yeah, of, of course, of, <laughs> of course. Right. And I could do that with rocks, you know? Yeah. Rocks and well, 70, 80. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they, they, there was a story out online about Bartello Cologne, you know, uh, oh, yeah. going up, throwing rocks, and, you know, I put it on Facebook the other yeah. day I, uh, how he did. He was throwing rocks to knock mangoes out of a tree or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so the biggest thing with, with those type of activities is that there's a lot of people out there selling a lot of stuff, a lot of people doing good things, uh, a lot of people attempting to, go, to do good things. Um, but with all the products and all the protocols and all the things that you're swamped with, it's best if 
you have any doubt or confusion, then don't just randomly adapt something that you don't have a complete understanding of. You know, do your research. Talk to someone that might be in the know. Understand. Talk to the individual that's there for you and and your and your young athlete. Um, you know, don't talk to the guy as I've said in the past that came to put the crown molding up with a hacksaw because he told you he's a magnificent magician with that hacksaw. You know, as I said, he's selling hacksaws or he's selling his ability to cut with hacksaws. He's not trying to do the best job possible is putting crown molding up. Um, so he's not doing it for you. He's doing it to prove that he's right. So um, in all these training protocols, all these different things, there's a lot of ways to adapt. There's a lot of ways to do things that are most beneficial for the young player. And eventually that young player starts to learn who's in it for them or who's in it for themselves. Um, very similar to some of the stories we've talked about, you know, major league front offices, you know, who's there, who's there for their own agenda, who's there for the betterment of the organization. So it, it runs through, it's not like something that's, you know, new, it, it runs through its human nature, it runns through all of our society. And as we grow and as we grow as individuals and learn and become knowledgeable, um, you know, like Lance Nichols once said, how much is this ball weigh? You know, what's the circumference? You're trying to make a living throwing this ball and you know nothing about it. I mean, if you're trying to be successful in anything, do the research, talk to the right people who are there to help you be who you are, not somebody that they want you to be. No, that's great, uh, great advice. And I, even with us, I challenge our audience. I think we have a very sophisticated audience. Don't just accept our word as gospel too. do your own research. Uh, as a parent, you need to be the first educator of your child and everything you do. And I think when that happens, uh, people like yourself, Jim, uh, stand out uh, as you should uh, in, in this crazy world of baseball right now. We have so much products, overload of information and misinformation out there. And um, all we're trying to do is help people sort it out. But again, we challenge you to challenge us um, without question. So, well, I think it's a great way to leave the audience. Anything else you want to add or anything in closing outside of the story? I think great story, great way to tie it up today. No, I think we're good. Just uh, as we've said in the past, anybody have questions, feel free to contact us. Even if all the contact goes through Dave, it's uh, no problem. Oh, uh, please get it to Jim. Go directly. Go directly. Now, how can they find you? Where can they find you on social and and uh, how can they, if they have a child out there in, in your area or they're happen to go, be going through the Charlotte area, Fort Mill, how can they reach out to you to, to set up a, a session? Uh, on Facebook, you can uh, look up Rooney, Rooney Baseball, R-O-O-N-E-Y. Uh, email uh, coachjim at rooneybaseball.com. And the website, which is up just so that you can uh, kind of get to know me, is uh, www.rooneybaseball.com. Uh, but like I said, on Facebook, you want to send me a message. On the website, you can hit the, the chat and send me a message. They'd send me a, a text message immediately, uh, which usually includes your phone number and like that. I can give you a call back. Uh, but any way you feel most comfortable. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and to our audience, thank you for supporting this show. Make sure you go on and give Jim five stars. Write some nice comments underneath the, the stars. You can stream us on our our, tr our old traditional platforms, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, but because you guys, you got us to the big leagues with iHeartRadio, so thanks for that. Make sure you're streaming us on there so we can keep up with the analytics of that podcast world just like we, we've done so far and we're doing in Major League Baseball. 
50,000 and growing subscribers, 74 countries, Jim. So you're global uh, right now and deservedly so. Continue to support us. We'll continue to provide you great content every week. And Jim, thanks so much for a great show and have a great weekend. Thank you, Dave. Enjoy the weekend. Everybody out there, enjoy. Raise up right, 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 right,